I am very excited in particular for the Indigenous Health Panel. Um, I think I stole Tolu's answer. <laughs> Healthcare Forum. In this second episode of a four-part series, we're going to be talking about mental health care coverage. You'll be listening in on my conversations with three speakers who are here at the Rhodes Healthcare Forum talking about mental health care. Professor Pamela Collins, Dr. Tom Insel, and Professor Vikram Patel. I'm going to be talking to these three speakers about how gender, mental health, and physical health intersect about how we can use the smartphone to improve mental health outcomes, and about how we can expand mental health care coverage by training community members to deliver that care. First though, I want to set the mental health care scene a little and get some answers to some more general questions I had about mental health care coverage, like, to what extent does mental illness affect people around the world? And is the quality of mental health care different to the quality of physical health care people receive? Professor Pamela Collins. I think traditionally in global health, there have been priorities. Those priorities have been around infectious diseases. They've been around maternal and child health. And these, of course, are all critical areas of health care that need to be addressed anywhere. But non-communicable diseases like mental disorders, are the leading causes of disability around the world. Professor Vikram Patel. There's an enormous difference in the quality of care that people with mental health problems receive when compared to people with physical health problems. Um, across the board, across all countries, they receive much poorer quality of care. For example, uh, we know that psychological treatments are very effective for a range of mental health problems but the vast majority of the world's people who are affected by these problems don't receive these treatments. Not being in the healthcare world, I'd never heard anyone refer to mental illness as a disability before, as Professor Collins just did. It really emphasised to me how differently we speak about physical health and mental health in everyday life. It made me think that, despite the mental health campaigns and changing attitudes that are making it increasingly okay to share mental health problems, the way we speak differently about mental illness and physical illness still suggests the suffering mental illness causes is not equal to the suffering that physical illness can produce. And this seems to be mirrored in the quality of mental health care provided across the world, as Professor Patel just described. I found that a lot of my assumptions about mental health would be challenged speaking to Professor Collins, Dr Insel and Professor Patel today. So let's get down to the interviews with our speakers, starting with Professor Collins. Professor Collins is here talking specifically about women, severe mental illness and health disparities, and the way that gender, mental illness and physical illness intersect. I really wanted to just take severe mental illness on its own to start with though, as if I'm honest, I wasn't entirely sure what sorts of mental illnesses were classed as severe. When we talk about uh, people with severe mental illness, we're typically talking about uh, conditions that are more chronic and conditions that really affect people's ability to function in their daily life. So they cause a, a great deal of disability often. 
and you know people people get better from those conditions uh, sometimes, but often we have a lifetime of needing to figure out the best ways of managing that condition and living with it in ways that allow one to be productive and allow one to fully engage in life. Okay, so, so now maybe you could talk about how sex or, or gender intersects with mental illness. I think in the mental health community we often distinguish between common mental disorders and that simply means these are the kinds of more prevalent problems that occur. And if you go to a primary care doctor, a primary care doctor will see a lot of people with depression, a lot of people with anxiety, because those occur quite commonly. Depression and anxiety are uh, mental disorders that tend to be more prevalent among women. Substance use disorders, sort of traditionally when you look at the epidemiology, tend to be more prevalent among men. Now, depression, when it's severe, and when it's not as responsive to treatment, can be also considered a severe mental disorder, as, as well as disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, often considered among the severe mental illnesses. Um, and those tend to have more of a balance in terms of sex, in terms of the incidence in men and women. But one of the things that we have noticed, and this is, I'll use schizophrenia as an example, is that how people live with the condition may differ by sex. So women often have better social functioning when they're living with schizophrenia. The onset of schizophrenia occurs a bit later in women compared to men. So we're talking about, you know, symptoms starting in their 20s as opposed to their late teens, for example. But that the, that, the fact that they do maintain better social functioning, better connection perhaps with family and other relationships, marital relationships even, is really good. But I think that also is important for what we may talk about a little bit later in terms of um, the kinds of risks and vulnerabilities that uh, some women with mental illness may find themselves mm -hmm. facing in the context of HIV risk and other kinds of disorders. Let's talk a little bit about um, HIV risk then, specifically amongst, uh, amongst women mental illness. Yeah, so what I, what I talked about yesterday was specifically um, HIV risk in women with severe mental disorders. And let me just take a step back to say that this, this elevated risk, it does not simply fall upon women, that men and women, in fact, most of the studies that have been done in the U.S. and other parts of the world show that people with severe mental illness are, are one of the vulnerable populations. In fact, I would go so far as to say you know, the AIDS community, HIV community, talks a lot about um, key populations. Those are populations that are at particular risk. And often those vulnerabilities have to do with social determinants of health, exposure to poverty, exposure to stigma, exposure to other kinds of inequalities. And I, I would say that people with severe mental disabilities or severe mental disorders have those same kinds of vulnerabilities. So yesterday we talked about women, and one of those vulnerabilities being violence for example, exposure to violence. And we know that compared to women in the general population, women with severe mental illness are much more likely to have had experiences of intimate partner violence or familial violence than, uh, number one, than men, and then, as I said, than women who don't have a serious mental illness. These are, these are potential exposures to things like HIV, particularly in places where prevalence is high. But also because, because of the way that social stigma operates to 
separate women to reduce their choices, often reduce opportunities, the kinds of relationships that women find themselves in may leave them disempowered to protect themselves from things like HIV infection. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about, about the idea of uh, stigma. You also mentioned how stigma can not only affect someone in there or a woman in there, uh, everyday life, but also how stigma can perpetuate health inequalities. Yeah, I talked about stigma as a fundamental cause of health inequalities, and that's a that's a term that was coined by Bruce Link, who's a sociologist who's in a, in a leading stigma research, researcher. Bruce Link and other colleagues of his, Joe Phelan, others, and what they meant by that was that the way that stigma operates is that it actually restricts people's access to resources. Stigma operates at multiple levels. Stigma is a process that is governed by power relationships, and it it involves several steps. First, people are labeled and identified as us versus them. You label someone with with a problem, and you decide that they are not part of us. They're then separated, and usually that that label is something that devalues people. And then in the context of power, that limits their access to resources and makes them vulnerable to discrimination. So ultimately, the stigma process leads to discrimination that keeps people away from life opportunities, keeps them away from, in very concrete terms, can limit your access to housing, to education, to jobs, to relationships. To, to many things that, um, that would enable one to have a healthy life. Um, uh, you also mentioned the, the gap uh, between providers and receivers of healthcare and how this gap can sometimes get bigger if uh, there's a difference of, of gender between the provider of healthcare and the receiver of healthcare or a difference of age, potentially difference of culture as well. How do we bridge this gap? Yeah, so... You know, one of the things that I was talking about in that example specifically was when healthcare providers are confronted with several issues. Number one, with learning how to manage mental illness. And rec- I think we have to recognize also that, that healthcare providers can also be people who enact stigma and have stigmatizing ideas about people with mental illnesses. They're not, they're not exempt from that. But when a healthcare provider is faced with managing a mental illness, but when we bring in the additional layer of vulnerability, perhaps because of poverty, because of violence, um, because of using substances, vulnerability to, to HIV risk, now that provider needs to talk about other sensitive issues that may or may not be easy for him or her to do that. And in many cultural settings, a provider may not feel free to talk about sex with someone who's of a different gender, may not feel free to talk about sex or HIV risk with someone who's of a different age, may not feel free to talk about it with someone that that has a mental illness because they may perceive that the person doesn't understand. Or they may have their own ideas about what that person's sexuality is like, that in fact, oh, that person must not possibly have any sexual partners because they have such a disabling problem Or conversely, they may say, well, that person probably is at great risk because they may have a a sense that everyone in this, in this, with this kind of a diagnosis 
will have had some sort of coercive sexual experience or may have been abused in the community. But actually having those conversations that help you to understand the person sitting in front of you, I think, can sometimes be difficult depending on the context. Yeah, I guess it goes back to what you were saying about trying to engage with, like you say, the, the person in front of you, but, but that whole person. I think maybe there's a tendency when someone becomes a, a patient that that is their identity, their identity is patient, and that is dehumanising to an extent. What's dehumanising is exactly, as you said, not actually considering the whole person, right? And limiting someone to one specific identity. We talked yesterday about intersectionality as well, meaning recognizing one person walks through life with multiple identities and sometimes multiple identities that are associated with social stigmas. Um, I think I gave the example of being a woman, which in many settings might also be something that subjects one to stigma or certainly to certain kinds of vulnerabilities. Having a, a serious mental illness also might subject the same woman to to social stigma and other vulnerabilities. Being a woman of color in certain environments might also do the same thing. Being an immigrant might also. So one has to understand what these identities are, but recognizing that those identities don't necessarily all intersect to lead to worse outcomes, but one has to try and understand the unique ways in which they interact to affect women's risk. Speaking to Professor Collins reminded me yet again how easy it is for all of us to make assumptions. Assumptions about what mental illness is, about how mental illness does or doesn't interact with physical illness, and about what an individual's experience of mental illness might be like, and how often these assumptions can be incredibly damaging. Speaking about assumptions reminded me of an assumption of my own that I've made right here at the forum. When I heard that Dr. Tom Insel was here speaking about how the smartphone could help improve mental health outcomes, I thought, but surely smartphones are more likely to cause mental health problems than help to improve them. Turns out, I was about to have another one of my assumptions about mental health challenged. I asked Dr. Insel how he started thinking about the smartphone as a positive tool when it came to mental health care coverage. One of the things that we struggle with a lot in the treatment of mental illness is that um, we don't have good objective measures the way we do for diabetes or hypertension or even using your body temperature for infectious diseases. So much of, of medicine has progressed through the development of tools that um, give us these objective, quantifiable measures. There's a saying in the business world that you don't manage well what you don't measure well. It's the case that we haven't done so well in mental illness. We haven't really been able to bend the curve on morbidity or mortality, or better way to say that is disability or death. And these are deadly illnesses. So coming up with better measurement um, could be one way to make progress. Um, but how to do that? Well, what we have done in the past is we've measured using clinical ratings, asking people how they feel and then marking it down. But that turns out to still be quite subjective. So the possibility of using um, the phone, which where you, people are engaged with all the time, as if we could, if we found the right signals, have objective measures that would be daily or 
almost continuous and potentially even passive. It wouldn't require someone to fill out any forms. It wouldn't require a, um, a physician or a nurse to, or a psychologist to call them and ask them how they're doing. You just get the information. I'd love to know a bit more about those signals. So what kinds of things are you looking at uh, with someone's uh, smartphone usage to be able to track their mental health? Right. Well, if you think about what does the smartphone do, there's at least you know three or four obvious things, right? So the, the phone's always tracking um, your activity. So it knows when you're awake and when you're asleep. For many people, they turn on their phone first thing in the morning and they turn it off when they go to bed. So it's, um, you can get some idea from the sensors and from the metadata of the phone use about someone's uh, activity and their locations. Speech and voice is a very powerful indicator of depression and psychosis. We use that clinically. That's how we assess people. But when you capture this speech and voice on the phone, you can apply a whole range of analytics that we call natural language processing. It gives us really now very objective measurements of things like sentiment and coherence and aspects of, of language that are a pretty good window into how somebody's thinking and how they're feeling. There's a third area. It was developed out of cybersecurity. It was using not what you say or what you type, but how you type. It's actually the way you interact with the keyboard, looking at reaction times, looking at typing patterns that turns out to be um, surprisingly informative. We all have a particular pattern and we have a kind of digital fingerprint that we that we leave on um, when we use our phones and um, that also is an indication of how we're doing. It shifts a little bit depending on whether we're depressed or manic or tired or using substances. All of those things have an impact on this interesting human-computer interaction measure. I find it fascinating this idea that we're giving out these signals uh, mm -hmm. all the time and I think also what's really interesting about what you're doing is if someone was to say to me, oh, you know, what, what do you think about mobile phones when it comes to mental health? I would say, well, excessive use of, of mobile phones, is, especially if you're using a mobile phone to go on social media, maybe that's going to be really bad for your mental health. You know, as a non-expert, that would be my reaction. So it's interesting that you're, that you're focusing on, on the smartphone as something that can be really positive in a mental health environment. Well, I, I think it's still a question that's out there. Is this the problem or is it the solution? And I think it could be either one. And so, you know, what we've thought more and more about is uh, this kind of old Aikido uh, idea that when somebody throws a punch, you take that energy and use it for your own purposes. And um, that's kind of what this is about. You want to go where people are. One of the big issues that we face in mental health care is that more than half the people who would benefit aren't coming in for care, uh, but they are on their phones. So um, if you really want to bend the curve, you really want to have an uh, impact, you, you've got to meet people where they are. You can't necessarily expect them to come to you. As Dr. Insel and I were talking, I kept wondering about mobile phone privacy and issues of consent especially in today's world where the question of data ownership is a hot topic. I mean, would people sign up to their smartphone being monitored? Or would it be something inbuilt in the phone? And then, if it was a question of signing up, what happens if the most vulnerable people are the ones that are most likely not to sign up? Dr. Insel's idea seems so promising. 
but there are clearly risks that need to be addressed. Well, that's a great way to phrase this. I think it is, um, it's promising, but it <clears throat> could be entirely derailed by um, the misuse. I mean, at, at, at some way, we talk about this as creating digital biomarkers or digital uh, monitoring to help people manage their illness, but it also can sound like surveillance and it could be quite intrusive. So to be clear, at this point, these are for the most part, research projects in which people are consenting and you're doing this with them. But there's also a real risk in how this could be used, especially as the technology gets more and more powerful and gives us insights into how people are thinking or feeling. To me, it, it's um, a little bit easier to be doing what we do, which is content-free. We don't collect anything like we don't collect the words, we don't collect the speech or, or geolocation or any of that. It's just these reaction times, which is a little less evocative, I think. But even then, um, it has to be done in a way that ensures uh, trust. And there's that word again, trust. We heard Sir Jeremy Farrer saying it in the first episode of the series when he was talking about how academics can't expect public trust in the same way that they used to. And now we're hearing it in a context of collecting data to improve mental health outcomes. I'm starting to realise that trust is one of the key underlying issues emerging out of this forum. Dr Inzel explains what trust looks like in this particular context, that it's about transparency and the individual's agency to control the data being collected. It has to be transparent so people know exactly what's being collected and how it's being collected. It has to provide agency to the person so they have to have control over this that is they're doing it not only with consent but they can stop it at any point um, and, and this is something that they own rather than anybody else and the third is there has to be um, a, a clear sense of responsibility in terms of how the data are being used so that there's a really important aspect to um, privacy protection um, data provenance, all of those issues that have to be thought through very carefully here. If it isn't handled appropriately, then I think we'll lose the opportunity to develop something that could be very powerful. I just wanted to uh, talk a bit about your vision for how the um, mobile health technology will be implemented, if you, if you have any ideas yet on that, because, okay, so you've maybe picked up signals from someone's phone, uh, let's leave aside the issue of, of consent here for now, they're at risk of suicide, say. What happens then? You have the information, but is it a question of, I don't know, them receiving a notification on their phone that they need to come into a healthcare centre or someone will pay them a visit? How does that work? I know you may be not at that stage yet, but do you have a vision? No, we very much are at that okay. stage, and that's a critical question. I, I sometimes say that what we've built is a digital smoke alarm great to have a smoke alarm, but the only point of doing that is if you're prepared to put out the fire. And, and of course, that has to be built as well. So um, what we have is a whole um, kind of efferent arm. It's a kind of response arm that gets triggered by the digital signal. Some of it is online, some of it is offline, but it's a whole range of interventions that can be immediately available. So if we think somebody's about to relapse based on the signals we're seeing, then there's a um, artificial intelligence nurse, a bot, that contacts them 
um, to check in, and if the bot it sort of does triage, if they realize that there's a set of issues that require um, an intervention of any sort, that they that then directs um, to one of three different kinds of interventions. So it's a whole uh, healthcare uh, kind of closed loop that's pretty interesting because. None of that exists today. We have a really fragmented mental health care system. It's not even a system. It's very episodic. And there's no kind of day-to-day monitoring of what's going on. And the other thought that I had about the use of the smartphones is that I imagine that smartphone use is higher in younger generations of people. Are you specifically targeting the younger generations, or do you think maybe there's a risk of excluding more elderly generations um, from right. this, this yeah. mental health care. So this whole thing called the digital divide is uh, an issue. It's not uh, as much as one would think. I mean, um, I'm almost 70, so you know, I'm, you know, it's, I'm in that older generation. And um, you know, I don't think that people my age use phones that much less. I mean, there are three billion phones out there with very heavy use. The, you know, the, most of the concerns are about the overuse, not the underuse, and, and over-access, not under-access. There are people that don't have phones, but um, surprisingly uh, few. I, um, I'll tell the story this afternoon when I talk about going to Tanzania, being way out in uh, Masailan, maybe 100 kilometers from the nearest road. Uh, with these uh, shepherds that don't have uh, running water, they don't have electricity, they don't have shoes, they all have smartphones. I thought Dr. Insel's image of the smartphone as a metaphorical smoke alarm that could be used to prevent or put out a mental health fire, as it were, was so powerful. It made me think how it's much easier to put out a fire when there are a lot of hands ready to help. But in a mental health context, there's a shortage of mental health professionals meaning those hands aren't readily available. Or are they? The last of today's interviewees is Professor Vikram Patel, and he speaks very passionately about the possibilities of improving mental health care coverage by training community members to deliver that care. This is something that's often called task sharing. While task sharing is not meant to substitute professional care, it is geared to help where mental health care coverage is poor. I asked Professor Patel to explain a bit more. For me, one of the most important innovations that global mental health has come up with is the demonstration that a whole range of providers can effectively deliver psychological and social interventions for mental health problems, including lay people. Lay people with the appropriate training and supervision have been shown to effectively deliver psychological treatments for mood disorders, anxiety disorders, trauma-related conditions, and so on. This is transforming our ideas of who is a mental health care provider. In short, anyone can be a mental health care provider, of course, provided they've received appropriate training, support, and supervision. So when we're talking about task sharing, are the, the outcomes for people receiving this care the same as they would be for receiving care from a professional? So the first thing to say about task sharing is that it's not substituting for a mental health professional. In most parts of the world, task sharing is really seeking to expand access to care to people who were not able to see a mental health professional. So it's not the case that is task sharing better 
or not as compared to specialist care. It's about how tar sharing can improve access to quality care for people who don't have access to specialist care. Yeah, I was wondering if you, you had a, maybe a specific example in a specific country within a mental health care context that's been particularly effective. A good example of tar sharing is the delivery of a brief psychological treatment based on the theory of behavioral activation, which is a psychological uh, uh, principle um, for people with depression. We developed a brief treatment. Why brief? Because people really have to get better quickly and they don't have time to engage with long-term therapies. These We're talking about people who often have very pressing social economic constraints on their lives. The delivery agent was a layperson in the local community who was trained to provide this treatment in primary care. And we ran a randomized control trial in India and demonstrated astonishing effects really of this treatment delivered by this lay provider. The great news is that the same treatment now has been replicated, the effects of this treatment have been replicated in another trial in Nepal. And what I'm really excited about is that this brief treatment is now being tested in the US and Canada. And this really reflects how the world is united around these issues because people in all countries, there is no country in which people with mental health problems universally receive high quality care. Are there any risks associated with task sharing? So I think the most important risks associated with task sharing is first of all to the provider. Working in the mental health sector requires support, it requires supervision and therefore task sharing should only ever be done at a scale with supervision and support. And the second risk is that not everyone's going to respond to task sharing. Um, you know, one size does not fit all in any healthcare condition, uh, health condition. Um, and this is also true for mental health problems. And so it's really important to see task sharing as part of a menu of interventions that are offered to people in a coordinated way. Yeah, and something that I've heard you speak about before, I think, is the empowering effect that task sharing can have on communities and individuals uh, involved? You know, for me, the power of knowledge to care for others in helping yourself improve your own well-being, your sense of self-esteem, your sense of efficacy is incredibly powerful. And in a world where we have growing legions of young people who are wanting to be productive members of their community, but who are not finding gainful employment, it seems to me that task sharing is a win-win for two reasons. First of all, of course, because it affords a very cost-effective way of delivering care for people who otherwise are not receiving it. But also, it affords an incredibly valuable opportunity to generate employment for people uh, across the world. So this morning we heard from uh, Sir Jeremy Farr on the role of academia in, in promoting universal healthcare and it's something that I've been talking a lot with speakers about, um, I think especially talking about the idea that academia is a space where we often conceptualise change and sometimes it's difficult to then sort of implement those changes that have been conceptualised and I'm wondering if tar sharing is a really interesting example of um, how that, that barrier can sort of be broken down academia can widen its circles to share share knowledge um, and implement it as a result. So that's one of the most powerful ideas about tar sharing, that it democratizes knowledge. It reduces the incredible asymmetry of power that exists in the healthcare field. There are a few people with MDs and PhDs who hold all the power because of the knowledge that they have. And I think what tar sharing does is it actually diffuses that. It allows that knowledge and that skill 
to permeate into a much broader section of the community. And in doing so, it reduces the asymmetry. And so therefore, it's extremely empowering, not just for the person who's been trained to deliver these interventions, but actually for the entire ecosystem of healthcare. Yeah, it sounds like it really makes healthcare more more inclusive as well, which is something that we're talking a lot about. Um, Absolutely, about of course it does. It, it makes healthcare, more, you know, I'll tell you one of the most exciting ways in which star sharing, it makes it more inclusive and empowering, is when people with a lived experience themselves are engaged with helping other people. Because in a, in a, in a very unique way, if you had a lived experience of, say, for example, schizophrenia, the very nature of the lived experience makes you an expert. Sometimes people call it expert by experience. You understand what it means to experience things like hearing voices or having very, very distressing thoughts in, in a way that no professional could. Um, and therefore, you have the double advantage, not only of learning the skills to help someone else, but also being able to share your own personal experience with that other person. The title of the talk Professor Patel was giving at the forum was the fate of mental health care under universal coverage. There was something about that word fate that seemed to have a ring of doom about it. I wanted to know if, despite the obstacles Professor Collins, Dr Insel and Professor Patel himself had mentioned, we can be optimistic for the future of mental health care coverage. I'm extremely optimistic, not only because that now sharing has now become widely accepted. When I started working in this area more than a decade ago, there was a huge amount of pushback, particularly from professionals, that this was an unsafe uh, idea. But, you know, the evidence has really proven that it's not only very safe, but also very effective. But I think in addition to task sharing is the amazing opportunity that digital technologies offer, both in terms of training the workforce, as well as providing tools for people who are affected by mental health problems to care for themselves. Speaking about mental health care today with Professor Collins, Dr Insel and Professor Patel really made me reflect on how we think and talk about mental health care in comparison to physical health care, about the stigma that accompanies mental health care and about some of the innovative solutions such as smartphone use and task sharing that can help improve mental health outcomes, especially in areas where coverage is particularly poor. Join me in the next two episodes of this four-part series covering the Rhodes Healthcare Forum to explore two other important issues being spoken about here this weekend. Equal and inclusive healthcare coverage and transformative tools and patient therapies. listening to today's podcast brought to you by the Rhodes Trust. Special thanks goes to all of today's interviewees, the Rhodes Healthcare Forum Committee, the Rhodes Communications Team and Kira Allman. This podcast was produced by myself, Christy Calloway-Gale, and the music you heard was Hopeful Journey by Scott Holmes, provided by freemusicarchive.org. <laughs>